You're listening to Kaleidoscope, Reflections on Islam, a podcast sponsored by the Abbasi Program in Islamic Studies at Stanford University, exploring how people engage with Islam and Muslims today. I'm your host, Ambreen Bhatti, and for this episode, we're exploring how politicians engage with Islam and Muslims, and how Muslims engage with politics. As the first Muslim ever elected to Congress, our guest knows a little something about both of those things. Here's Congressman Keith Ellison hanging with us in our office a couple of days ago. This morning, when I was driving here, I was thinking about this. You were elected in 2006? Yes. Yeah, and it was such a big deal. It was kind of crazy, man. <laughs> such a big deal, right? The first Muslim in Congress. You, know, you said you were planning to take your oath of office on a Quran, and you just got a whole lot of hate, not even from your district. And then you just kind of casually showed up with Thomas Jefferson's Quran. It's been almost a decade since all of that. Is the fact that you're Muslim still a big deal, you think, or you think folks are kind of over it? You know, it it pops out uh, on occasion. It sort of fall to the background as I served longer. Because when I ran for Congress, you know, I didn't really run as a Muslim, you know. I mean, I pray, I fast, uh, I go to Juma, but I'm not really an Islamic leader. You know, I don't I don't think I've ever given uh, a khutbah, you know, and uh, I don't I don't have any aspiration to do so. Right. I'm, I just you know, t- it's my faith, you know, and that's and that's what it is. So in the beginning, it was a big deal because there had never been a Muslim before. And uh, I was called upon and it was sort of like always whenever anybody introduced me as, you know, the first Muslim, Keith Ellison, blah, blah. But as I served longer and as my personal priorities, you know, began to prevail, you know, more things like um, fair economy for workers, fair economy for middle class people, racial justice, uh, environmental sustainability, big important issues for me, immigration reform, those things used to got pushed out into the front much more. And uh, I used I remember the first time after about my third year in Congress when they didn't introduce me as the first Muslim, but just started just went in on, you know, my position on raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour. You know, you <laughs> how, know how did that feel? I kind of I felt a certain victory, you know, because I'm very. I mean, I am I proud to be a Muslim? Well, I know I'm not ashamed of it. I mean, I'm 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 just trying to be you know pleasing in the sight of God, right? So pride is not, I don't know if that's the right word for it, but I'll say, I'll say that uh, it was good to be able to talk about the issues that I ran for. Are there Muslims in all of the work that you're doing? There's Muslims in every single thing I'm doing. Take some of the work on the environmental stuff. Well, there's a brother named Ibrahim Mateen who wrote a book called The Green Dean. Now, Dean is an Islamic term, which means religion or, you know, it doesn't mean exactly faith, but it just means the way religion is done, sort of. So he writes that book and about the Muslim injunction to be a good environmental steward in the area of uh, of pay. You know, Linda Sarsour uh, is very fond of saying, you know, there's Hadith saying that pay the worker before the sweat is dry on their brow. In other words, pay your workers on time, pay them fairly, pay them right. All my work about economic uh, disparities in America has a lot of strong Islamic, you know, a resonance because this is in our faith to have to have a fair economy, you know, and we know that we got you got to be fair to the worker and the business person, you know, 
Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, was a was both a worker and a business owner. He was both of those things. And he was he had a reputation for being scrupulously fair as a business owner, and he had a reputation for being a hard worker as a worker. And so this is within our uh, tradition, our sunnah, to, 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 to look at the economy being fair as a critically important thing. It's not, I, I believe, and I'm now a scholar of Islam, but I believe it's un-Islamic to hoard vast sums of wealth while other people are living in poverty. I don't think you can do it from a moral standpoint. I like to see some people really flesh that out because I think that there's probably a lot of real problems with it. Like, for example, the idea of riba, I think fundamentally is that you cannot use debt to enslave people. Earlier this week, uh, I was fighting for 15 in a union. There was lots of hijabis out there, you know, plenty of them. Uh, I was fighting for justice for cabbies. And, you know, because they're concerned about, you know, Lyft and Uber and all those kind of things. A lot of Muslims, you know, a lot of Pakistanis, a lot of uh, Somalis, a lot of uh, Nigerian Muslims. You know, here's the thing. There's a lot of working class Muslims in the United States. And as a matter of fact, in the history of the United States, there have been uh, Muslims who uh, have been there every step of the way. So everyone in California knows of Cesar Chavez. But do they know about the Yemeni labor leader who was working right next to Seisha Chavez? So uh, that was embarrassing. I had no idea. I wish I could blame that on being sort of new to California, but... Nagi Daifullah. He, is, he was, uh, was a Yemeni migrant to the United States and a union organizer with the United Farm Workers. We need to lift this guy up, man. You know, he's awesome. You know, and by the way, Daifullah was killed August in August 1973 at the age of 24 by Kern County police when one officer beat him in the head mm, with yeah, a flashlight yeah. and then dragged him so that his head continued hitting the pavement. And that's not a story that is unfamiliar to us. You know what I mean? So, yeah, Muslims working on, you know, part and parcel of the fight for 15 in the union. The, Muslims fight, fighting for a cleaner environment. Muslims fighting for uh, to be free of unreasonable search and seizure from the government. Uh, Muslim advocates on the front line fighting against, um, you know, uh, abuse of the Constitution and racial profiling and unfair uh, rules. Um, and they're just as outraged as by somebody getting shot for wearing a hoodie as they are for somebody being abused for wearing a hijab. You know what I mean? I mean, the Muslim community is fully uh, a, a member of the civil rights community. A lot of Muslims are uh, leading the band in the area of criminal justice reform, like the mass incarceration. You know, uh, a lot of Muslims are working on, on this issue. So there's not one single issue that I work on where there's no Muslims to be found. I was in uh, Ferguson shortly after the, the so-called riots that happened there after the murder of Mike Brown. And uh, as you know, Ferguson had a voter turnout before, the, at that time, at around 12%. So we went down there to try to increase voter turnout. And I went into this black church uh, in Ferguson. And inside that black church, I found the Salam Clinic. So there's this black church with this African-American pastor, and inside of it, 
There's these four Pakistani docs, none of whom were born in the United States, seeing patients. Almost all the patients were black people, African-Americans, almost no Muslims. There might have been a few, not too many. And I said to all of them, I said, hey, you know, Dr. Ahmed, Reverend Johnson, you know, great job getting together to do this clinic, you know, in light of the riots. They said almost simultaneously, oh, no, we've been doing this for three years. They said, we've been doing this. And I, and I thought to myself, wow, you know, that's, that's interesting. That's, that's awesome. That's, I mean, th these are Muslims living out their values, and they are Christians living out their values, and they don't conflict, they complement, right? So this is the reality, this is part of the reality, too. That, you can't go to that black preacher and say, now nah, them Muslims are out to get you. Reverend Johnson's going to say, you better get out of here with that. These people are helping my folks deal with their diabetes, deal with their sugar, dealing with their all this stuff. I asked Congressman Ellison what he wished all Americans knew about Muslims. I wish that all Americans knew that the noblest values of all mankind can be found and are prominently displayed in Muslim communities. The noblest values that anybody has ever heard of or ever lived by have been practiced and led by, by Muslims as well. That as we uphold great uh, world leaders who fought for, for peace, fought for justice, you know, we like for example, a lot of Americans will be, you know, will look to Gandhi as sort of an inspirational figure who rid the British, who rid India of the British without waging war against them, but through peace. But how many people know Ghaffar Badshah Khan, who worked with Gandhi, was Muslim and was a dedicated peace activist as well and anti-colonialist. So that's something that people don't know. I mean, you know, just as, as we talk about Dorothy Day, Catholic, Martin Luther King, African-American Baptist, Rabbi Abraham Heschel, Jewish, you know, all these people fighting for justice, they're Muslim activists right there doing the same thing based on their faith. I want Americans to know that. You know, I do too. To hear more about the issues Congressman Ellison is working on, check out his podcast called We the Podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. You can also find it on his website. And to share your thoughts with us about what we just discussed, find us on Facebook or Twitter or email kaleidoscope at lists.stanford.edu. Thanks so much for listening and to the Abbasi program for its support. Till next time.